morning, Evanston Bible Fellowship. Great to be back with you. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Kevin Walker. Uh, you're stuck with me for four whole weeks. This is only week number two. Uh, for the students just making it back this week, welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you. And I need to say that actually uh, being on the doorstep of a campus like Northwestern actually makes me feel quite at home. Uh, our home church is down at Hyde Park, uh, and even Ashley mentioned the student at University of Chicago. They're our next-door neighbors. Uh, so it's, it's good to be with you and feels very much uh, at home with God's people. Uh, my task is to take us to the Word, so let's do that now. We'll be in 1 Kings 19. His contributions to the fields of mathematics, physics, astronomy, and theology have earned him the reputation of being one of the most influential scientists of all time. In April 1686, he presented his greatest work to the Royal Society, written in Latin and known as the Principia. Some of you already know that we're speaking about Isaac Newton. And in his Principia, Isaac Newton laid out, among many other things, the three laws of motion, the third of which you may know in kind of the common language of the day, that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. You're lucky I will not be giving you a physics lesson today, and we will not be considering the third law as it relates to motion, but as it relates to the flow of the narrative plot in our passage our story today will assure us that God keeps his promise by keeping his people. It's that simple. God keeps his promise by keeping his people. Last week, we saw the action. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah and the Lord embarrassed Baal and his prophets and executed them. What might be the opposite and equal reaction? How will they respond? We'll take a look at verses 1 through 8. Here we see Elijah is on the run, facing a reaction of retaliation. In verse 1, we saw that after the events on Mount Carmel, Ahab returns and tells Jezebel all that Elijah and the Lord had done. The miraculous things, fire falling from heaven, water falling from the sky in form of rain, and Baal was defeated. But Jezebel has what we like to call, in my household, Selective hearing. Maybe some of you are familiar. What is it that she focuses on? Do you notice? The thing that gets highlighted was the execution of her prophets. She was very vested in these prophets, and actually she provided for them as their kind of financial benefactor. Um, she's described even earlier in the previous chapter and in a motherly fashion to them, that they are eating at her table. She was as committed to Baal as Elijah was to Yahweh. The fact that Baal was publicly discredited actually had no impact on her. And to me, that's a little bit surprising. No repentance, no aha moment like, wow, really? That, that happened? She does not turn from her false god. And her response reveals, actually, for you and me, a stubborn unwillingness that lurks behind unbelief. At this point, it's not that she could not believe, 
but that she would not believe. How many of us have ever thought, if God had only showed me a real bona fide miracle, then I would believe. Maybe you would. But maybe you wouldn't. Uh, Jezebel and Ahab saw the miracles. There are many other stories in the Bible and in history where people see miracles and they don't turn. And I think this actually challenges a common notion that we have that actually the main barrier to unbelief or the main barrier to faith is an intellectual one. It plays a role for some, for sure. But in this story, and as we said in many like it, the real inhibitor is moral. It's not the fact that they can't. It's that they don't want to. John summarizes it in his gospel. He says that in the human condition, people loved darkness rather than the light. So nobody's saying here now that you shouldn't ask questions. You shouldn't engage your brain in the Christian faith. We talked last week, it's not a fairy tale. It's historical. It's bodily. It's, it's physical. But the caution from Jezebel is that we cannot allow our questions to become a disguise for the real issue. The real issue of, I don't want to put myself under God. I don't want to be responsible to anybody else. I'm just unwilling to believe, no matter what I see or hear. This is an obstacle for every one of us in the room. Questions and doubts are real and good for a Christian and for those exploring Christianity, I don't, I don't tell you to shy away from them. I only caution you to beware of another factor that might be keeping you from following Jesus. Well, Jezebel, we're not surprised then, does not repent. Instead, she pursues retaliation in a fit of rage, and she now threatens Elijah with the same death that he had uh, that he had carried out on her prophets. So Elijah wisely decides it's time to get out of town. We're going to take a little weekend away. And after a brief stop at the southern border of Israel, he heads into the wilderness and he asks God to take his life. Now, pause right there. Verse 3 says he ran because he was afraid of Jezebel because she was going to kill him. Now in verse 4, he's asking God to kill him. What was he actually afraid of? I'm actually not sure that he's afraid merely of dying, but I think it's the manner in which he would die. Imagine uh, what the newspaper would say if Jezebel was then able to kill the man who executed Baal's prophets. What a victory for Baal! He finally got back what he lost. Maybe he's not so weak after all. Elijah knew that if the, when the wicked claim victory over the righteous, strong saints can struggle. And he did not want his death to become a point of propaganda for Baalism. So if his life is going to end, only God would take it and it would happen in private. There would be no confusion of thinking that Baal actually won this round. 
So at this point, he asks God to take his life because he thinks that he's washed up as a prophet. He's afraid that the people are too far gone. And based on the continuing threats against his life, that his ministry is not worth or effective enough to be worth continuing. And so he's asking God for an early retirement. Send me out to pasture. Take my life. But God doesn't take his life now. Instead of allowing Elijah to retire, he offers Elijah refreshment to encourage him in his work. Now, Elijah's work for God may not look like much to him or you or me or anybody else. There are no staggering statistics, at least positively. No visible results with which to comfort himself. An annual report would not show a lot of return for his investment. There would be a lot of red ink. But God doesn't measure ministry success in such a way, and nor should we. When we consider our own service in the church or that of others, we ought to remember that actually God saw Elijah's apparently fruitless ministry as valuable enough to continue. And so God refreshed him. God sends an angel to feed him twice so that he has enough strength for the journey in front of him. And did you notice that the second meal uh, included an implicit invitation? Take a look at verse 7. In the second half, along with the meal, he now says, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. It's like God placed actually a little note card on the platter asking him to come for a meeting. Nothing has been mentioned about Elijah planning to go anywhere else to this point. He was just going out to die. But now apparently he has a much further journey to go that he needs two substantive meals. Well, where is he going? Mount Horeb, or as it's more famously known as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. The details offer striking reminders of the Exodus narrative. There's cakes of bread in the wilderness like manna. He travels 40 days and 40 nights back to Horeb, the place where God entered into a covenant with Israel and gave them his word. The prophet is bringing, or God is bringing the prophet back to the place where it all began. Well, having been on the run, fleeing retaliation, Elijah is now on the mountain, and now he's bringing an accusation. 9 through 18, Elijah is bringing an accusation against the people of God to God himself. He arrives at Horeb and awaits the meeting to which God invited him. But it's not long before God starts the meeting, and surprisingly, he allows Elijah to set the agenda. That is, he asks, what's going to be the topic of discussion here, Elijah? Uh, Elijah takes a deep breath, as you might before you're in a board meeting delivering bad news to the executive director or the chairman. He delivers a crushing assessment of God's people. They've broken the covenant that God made with them at this very mountain. They have left the one that loved them. Instead of sacrificing on altars, they are tearing them down. Instead of listening to God's word and repenting, they are killing prophets. Israel, as God's bride, has committed spiritual adultery. She has left her God for other gods, which are not gods at all. And Elijah is distressed by this unfaithfulness. And he has God's attention. God is listening 
spiritual and moral laxity amidst God's people is no small problem. It has God's attention and the attention of his servants. And if Elijah and God take this sinful state of the people seriously, ought not we? If God doesn't ignore sin, why would we? God is concerned about the state of our worship. He cares whether we sit and hear his word. Are we upset by the faithlessness of the church? Are we upset when God's word is put on the back burner for more relevant items of discussion? Are we upset when the leaders of the church are morally lax? When the church leaves God behind to court the favor of ruling powers, whether it be cultural or political. History is rife with examples of this in the church. And it doesn't sound too different from today's Western church either, does it? This is the kind of offense that Elijah brings to God's attention. Our kind of offense. But their rebellion was not because of Elijah's negligence. Before Elijah even brought these accusations to God, we read in verse 10 the description of his own work. He says, I was very jealous for God's name among the people. He gave himself wholly to the work. And he got run out of town for it. God's servants are zealous for God and for his people, and oftentimes it means for them what it meant for Elijah, rejection. Faithfulness to God, a love for his people, actually may not result in what we think of as a successful ministry. It may result on you, in you running for your life. Think of a few examples from the Bible. Remember the Israelites complaining against Moses at the very moment they were being delivered from Egypt at the Red Sea? Do you remember King David on the run from the demonic Saul? Do you remember John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded for speaking against the immorality of the king? Do you remember how often the apostle Paul was imprisoned and suffering and beaten and in danger? Do you remember Jesus Christ was despised and rejected by men? Do you remember that Jesus Christ came to his own, but his own did not receive him? Remember, Jesus Christ gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify and cleanse her. You see, greater than Elijah Jesus is the one with supreme concern for the people of God and their faithfulness, and yet he was rejected. Of all ironies, it is this very rejection that brings about our reconciliation to the God whom we have offended. Now, in contrast to the faceless Israelites who are under the accusation of Elijah, no one can bring a charge against those who have faith in Christ. Rather than accusation, we have received justification. And if Jesus has justified you, who can accuse you or condemn you? Answer, no one. So today, if you have wandered, 
if you have left God for any number of reasons, whether it was a sudden fall or just kind of a gradual drift, Jesus is concerned. He cares. He's ultimately concerned. Well, he will welcome you back at the cost of his life. He came anticipating and knowing rejection that he might receive us. So if, if that's you today, I, just, I encourage you to grab somebody after the service, an elder, a pastor, or a friend. But Jesus is concerned, ultimately, supremely concerned at the cost of his own life for you. And he would gladly welcome you back to his people. As you heard in the reading, and she did a great job. Is it, is it Rachel? You hammered the names. It was great. Elijah actually states this accusation two times against the people. After speaking to God in verse 10, he gets an even more personal encounter with God, which we'll take a look at in just a minute. But look again in verse 13. God again asks him. You weren't like having deja vu there in that moment. It actually, the whole thing happens twice, just a few verses apart. But verse 13, again, God asks Elijah why he is at the mountain. And Elijah tells him, Israel has left God. He's the only prophet left, and now they're trying to kill him. And the underlying question is, God, are you going to leave your people without a prophetic voice? Without a witness to the word, I'm the only one left speaking, and now my life is under threat. Who's left? Not only does it demonstrate, as we've already seen, how far the people have restrayed, it also raises the question as to whether God will keep his covenant promise to a people who have rejected him. Their rejection was evidenced by their rejection of the word and worship. But what will God do with people who have rejected him and his word? Now, sandwiched right in between these two accusations, we get a great scene in the Bible. Elijah has the encounter of a lifetime. We read in verse 11 that God promises to Elijah that he will pass by as he did on this same mountain years ago before Moses. This divine encounter is surprisingly highlighted more for what it is not than what it is. Maybe you heard it. During the series of these three frightening events, notice what is repeated three times. But the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And the Lord was not in the fire. Despite the dramatic nature of these supernatural events, the Lord was not in them. It is only after these events that the voice of a low whisper is heard. And that is when Elijah knows to go out to speak with God. That is when he knows he is there. Now, saying what's happening there is relatively easy. Understanding why it happened just this way or what the author is trying to communicate is a little more challenging. Uh, and I'd like to, we'll take a crack at it here. I'll beg your indulgence on it, but one author has actually uh, summarized three views really quickly and helpfully for us. 
what are three perspectives on the encounter? I think each has a grain of truth to it. We'll come down on the third. The first perspective he calls didactic. That is, God here is teaching and correcting Elijah in his approach to ministry. Rather than the loud, visible, miraculous events or religious flurry, like we saw in 18, we ought now be going about in ministry in terms of simple, quiet acts of Christian love and kindness. That's what the whisper means as opposed to the earthquake, fire, wind. Perspective two. This perspective is polemic. Here, we're understanding that this encounter with God demonstrates that he is actually different from and superior to Baal, the God defeated in 18. The point being, uh, Baal and all the other gods of the ancient Near East at the time are associated with great storms and natural events. But for God, those are just his errand boys. They're just the ones going before him saying, hey, actually, God's about to come. So this would be a great way to take a shot at these gods who identify themselves with the storm. He's above nature. He's not a part of it. He controls it. Third, I think most helpful, you can judge for yourself, is what he called the revelatory perspective. The view here holds that God is revealing himself to be present in a special way through his voice, through his word. Again, while the first two offer some valuable insights, I think this revelatory view makes the best sense of the argument of the book as a whole, as well as our immediate context, which we'll look at rapidly. If you took the time to read through First and Second Kings, which I think you would really enjoy, you'll notice the repetition of this phrase, word of the Lord. The author is actually particularly diligent to demonstrate when a prophet says something, he will then remind you that God said it would happen when it actually happens. He wants you to know that what God says, he means. And when he says he will do something, he actually does it. Uh, there's a really quick example. If you turn back one page, in 1714, Elijah says to the widow in Zarephath that she would not run out of oil. She would not run out of food. And then in verse 16, it says, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken by Elijah. There are a dozen examples at least of something just like this throughout First and Second Kings. So the point being then that God is concerned to demonstrate the fulfillment of his word in these books. Secondly, the immediate context, I think, sheds some light for us as well. In his presence, God is actually, what's he doing? He is speaking with Elijah. And what does he do? He speaks a promise of judgment and of grace for his people. Now, the cascading judgment under the swords of Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha doesn't really fit with the perspective that calls for a ministry of quiet love and kindness. Additionally, there's nothing in particular that seems to distance God from Baal um, in this passage itself. Um, rather, what God is reminding Elijah of is this. He's reminding him of how he works in the world. 
The whisper indicates that God is working in the world in his day and ours by the proclamation of his word. The working out of his word that may not be as dramatic as fire or earthquake or wind. So in verse 15, Elijah is to go back and anoint leaders who are going to bring these judgments on Israel for their abandonment of the Lord. The judgment waterfalls, and it's going to play out in the coming chapters. But the initial description makes it sound inescapable. Those who survive uh, Hazael, we're in verse 15 and following here. Those who escape Hazael are going to fall under Jehu. And those who escape Jehu will not escape Elisha, Elijah's apprentice. And we ask, who, who's going to be left? If Elijah's there complaining about the potential end to the people of God and their witness in the world, God seems to be agreeing with Elijah's assessment and is about to wipe out his promised people. It seems comprehensive. Is the place where God began his covenant at Sinai now the place going to be now going to be the place where he decides to end his covenant promise? The people he created will he now kill off? These are the questions that arise. Who will escape it? And that's concerning for people like you and me. Because as much as we might want to think that we're more like Elijah in this story, uh, we're probably a lot closer to the people that Elijah is accusing. We are the ones who are standing under the judgment of God for infidelity to him. We won't escape the judgment. But it's in verse 18 then that God's promised grace shines through. He, even from this group, even from this group who has torn down the altar and killed the prophets, God will save 7,000 from judgment. Now, that's a lot more than I would have expected based on how it was described in the previous verses. And we can only assume, we can only conclude that the sparing of these people is by the mercy and grace of God. That's the only way people would escape this comprehensive judgment on a people who have totally left God. Paul in Romans 11 actually makes the same point. Even when it seems like there is no one left following God, he is keeping a people. And now to be delivered from this judgment, which is comprehensive, it's not just merely not kissing Baal, it's actually faith in the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The whole argument of Romans 9 through 11 flows just that way. Paul picking up that God is saving a people, no matter where you're from, by the belief in Jesus' gospel. And that fits how... That fits how we've understood God working through his word. The whisper. Those faithful to him are those that are responding to his word, preached by the apostles. But also, these people will be a minority. It's not a dramatic and startling number. In fact, it will make you look around and wonder where everybody else is. It's like a tiny mustard seed. And the seed is guarded by grace and watered with his word.
Elijah's accusation has been brought to God on the mountain. And now we see God's word on the move. Just as God directed, starting now in verses 19 through 21, Elijah heads out and he finds Elisha, his soon-to-be apprentice in prophetic ministry. He casts his garment over him, calling him to the work. And Elijah demonstrates his commitment by destroying his tools and sacrificing his animals. No going back now. This is a response to God's call to ministry service that was all in. He was following his prophetic mentor. The mustard seed of God's work was growing. But we also see now, with these two on the road together, that God's word is in motion. The judgments prophesied to Elijah on the mountain are now coming into play. But not just the word of judgment, but the word of grace that God will bring about through his servants who are taking his word to the world and who fear and are jealous for his name. In the end then, the faithfulness, sorry, that's an important word not to get wrong. The faithlessness, I even have it underlined. Don't screw this one up, Walker, all right? In the end, the faithlessness of the people has now been met with an opposite and equal reaction. Despite them turning away from God, God has turned to them. While they were faithless, he remained faithful. And while we desert God, he is keeping his promise by grace to keep a people for himself. And that's an encouraging thought today. When our culture, as it continues to become more hostile to God and to his gospel, when our friends and our family turn away from God or dismiss us as parochial, unintelligent, when we see Christian leaders failing and falling, when we think that gospel witness is waning in the world, when it feels like you are all alone as a Christian, be assured that God is working to keep people for himself. It'll look more like a whisper than a windstorm, but his promises will not fall to the ground. He will not be left without a witness on earth. He will keep his promise by keeping his people. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, what grace you have shown us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. It is that for which we praise you to see your concern and your care at the cost of your life. We offer ourselves in worship and humble obedience. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.